You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for Thursday, March 2nd, reading of the Christian Science Monitor Daily. My name is Sherry McCundon. Today, I'll be reading premium stories from Wednesday, March 1st, and following up with miscellaneous articles. Today's premium stories. In new Congress, a bipartisan push to take on China. South Korea, Japan, work to move past a fraught history. In Peru, common good as a tool to fight corruption. No Naira in Nigeria. What's a cashless reporter to do? Library thrives in a Pakistan gun town and the olfactory superpower of AI. Today's intro from Mark Trumbull, staff writer. Clean energy has momentum, but also obstacles to be cleared. Here's some electrifying news. The world's investment in the transition toward low carbon energy surpassed $1 trillion for the first time in 2022, according to a recent analysis by the research group Bloomberg New Energy Finance. The record amount also represents a big acceleration from the year before and comes despite the way Russia's invasion of Ukraine roiled traditional energy markets. China led the charge, followed by the European Union, the United States, and other nations. The trend has broad public support in the U.S. and beyond. In Europe, the progress includes surging purchases of electric vehicles and heat pumps for residential air and water. In the U.S., last year's Inflation Reduction Act includes funding and incentives for a similar surge. Between that new money and the affordability of renewable power sources, the result could be a reduction of economy-wide greenhouse gas emissions 50% below 2005 levels by 2030. That, in turn, would keep a longer-term commitment within reach, net zero emissions by 2050. But we're not going to achieve this if we don't clear the way, says Lori Bird, director of the U.S. Energy Program at the World Resources Institute in Washington. That's because the next step would be to double the pace of both power and transmission line expansion, yet many energy products are hitting delays. Ms. Bird and a colleague, Katrina McLaughlin, have been thinking about how to ease the logjam. For one thing, they recommend enlisting community engagement and identifying community benefits early in project development to address not-in-my-backyard opposition. Other steps they propose could reduce bureaucratic slowdowns. The benefits will be broad-ranging, Ms. Bird adds, even for people who don't have climate change as their top priority. This is important at the local level because of the impacts that we're seeing from climate change such as hurricanes and wildfires and extreme heat, she says. Then there's improved air quality and the promise that strengthening electric grids will make them more reliable and bring energy costs down over time. It's economically beneficial, Ms. Bird says. It creates jobs in communities. A new Congress, a bipartisan push to take on China. Is America asleep to a growing threat or overhyping it? Lawmakers debate how to preserve democratic values at home and abroad as China's global influence expands. 
by Krista Case Bryant, staff writer, Washington. For decades, the U.S. line was that embracing China in a world economy and global order would inevitably help modernize and liberalize that country. Now there's a growing sense among members of Congress that this was a miscalculation and there's an urgent need to wake up and correct course. In a rare show of bipartisan agreement, Republicans and Democrats across a range of committees are highlighting what they see as the threat posed by the Chinese Communist Party, CCP, and pushing to counter its ideological, economic, and military advances. This is an existential struggle over what life will look like in the 21st century, and the most fundamental freedoms are at stake, said Chair Mike Gallagher at the first hearing of a new House Select Committee on China. The CCP laughed at our naivete while they took advantage of our good faith, added the Wisconsin Republican, a former Marine intelligence officer. But the era of wishful thinking is over. The Select Committee hearing held in prime time was one of several on Tuesday that underscored how serious this new Congress is about taking on China, with the House Foreign Affairs and Financial Services Committees also making the case for a tougher approach toward Beijing. Those efforts have gained new urgency in the wake of the recent Chinese spy balloon incident and frustration with China's lack of transparency about the COVID-19 pandemic. FBI Director Christopher Wray this week blamed China for interfering with efforts to determine how the pandemic began and confirmed publicly for the first time that the FBI believes it started with a lab leak in Wuhan, an assessment made with moderate confidence. That theory, which China has criticized as political and which was initially dismissed by many in the United States, garnered renewed attention with news that the Department of Energy also now views a lab leak as the most likely source, albeit with low confidence. Four other intelligence elements concluded that the virus emerged naturally, with also with low confidence. Among the key concerns for Congress is China's theft of intellectual property, giving it an unearned leg up economically and militarily. There is also growing momentum to counter the influence it wields via the social media platform TikTok, which is increasingly becoming a source of news for Americans and also collects personal data information that Beijing could exploit. This week, the Biden administration required the app to be removed from all government devices within 30 days. On the security front, there's growing concern about a potential takeover of Taiwan, which produces more than 90% of the advanced chips used in smartphones, laptops, and military equipment. And human rights issues, particularly the mass incarceration sterilization, and forced labor of China's Muslim Uyghur population are also at the top of the list. That's not to say there's total agreement on these complex issues, between or even within parties. Within the Biden administration, economic interests argue for more engagement, while national security interests take a more hawkish approach. Amid those divides, Congress could shift the balance by pressuring the White House to take further steps on TikTok, for example, or on U.S. military assistance to Taiwan. That pressure campaign includes, in part, an effort to galvanize American citizens by driving home to them that the CCP is not a faraway problem, but one that threatens the American way of life. Americans don't want to be in a Cold War 
hot war, a clash of civilizations, or any kind of hostilities with any country, says Representative Raja Krishnamurthy of Illinois, the top Democrat on the House Select Committee on China, in a phone interview. But they want to protect themselves, their interests, and their values. The success of any recalibration on China policy will ride in large part on lawmakers' ability to carve out specific areas of bipartisan cooperation in an otherwise fractious Congress. And it will require allaying some colleagues' concerns that the efforts to prevent a bigger conflict with China may inadvertently provoke one. Representative Andy Kim, a New Jersey Democrat on the Select Committee, takes issue with what he sees as the recent proliferation of unhelpful metaphors, such as referring to a new Cold War. We're framing this problem with such an immediate pessimism. That puts us in a place where we're forgetting our strength, he says in a phone interview. When you're running a race, you don't spend all your time trying to slow down your competitor. The framing is important, he adds, because it affects the temperature in the country and determines how the U.S. will respond. It also affects America's ability to build coalitions. We have many tools we need to focus on, says Representative Kim. It can't just be about our military and our military strength. Some of the tools proposed in congressional bills include isolating China financially, including through the International Monetary Fund, and financial sanctions on senior Chinese officials to deter and or punish aggression toward Taiwan. Another pair of bills in the House and Senate would open the, ways for, the way for sanctions against TikTok. Others involve supporting allies facing economic coercion by China and reducing Beijing's financial influence abroad by removing China's designation as a developing country, which qualifies it for low-interest loans. Another key tool is preventing U.S. technology and investment from fueling the rise of companies connected to the Chinese government. House Foreign Affairs Chair Michael McCall, a Texas Republican, focused much of his hearing yesterday on export controls, grilling Undersecretary Alan Estevez of the Department of Commerce about why its Bureau of Industry and Security approved more than $23 billion in licenses to sell U.S. technology to blacklisted Chinese companies in just one quarter last year. If BIS continues to mindlessly greenlight sensitive technology sales, the CCP has proven they will use our own inventions against us, says Chair McCall. Framing the relationship between U.S. and China as a race incorrectly implies that the two countries each have their own lane and are staying in it, says Ivan Kanapathy, who directed the National Security Council's China and Taiwan work under the Trump and early Biden administrations. If you want to call it a competition, it's not a race, it's a boxing match, says Mr. Kanapathy, now a senior associate with the Freeman Chair in China Studies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Representative Krishnamurthy says the U.S. wants to ensure a market-based economic system, freedom of thought, assembly, and speech, and a world that is hospitable to democratic values. What folks have to understand is that in CCP Chairman Xi's conceptualization, these particular values are not consistent with his ideology necessarily, says Mr. Krishnamurthy. He emphasizes that the select committee's scrutiny focus on the CCP, not on the people of China or people of Chinese origin, 
and cautions against inflaming anti-Asian sentiment in the U.S. A video clip played at the beginning of the select committee hearing quoted Chinese leader Xi Jinping as saying that our struggle and contest with Western countries is irreconcilable, so it will inevitably be long, complicated, and sometimes very sharp. It also showed a clip of him garnering applause when he said, according to translated subtitles, that any foreign force that tried to bully, oppress, or subjugate the Chinese people would bash their heads bloody on a great wall of steel. Tong Yi, a Chinese human rights advocate who now lives in the U.S., told the Select Committee Tuesday, In the U.S., we have to face the fact that we have helped to feed the baby dragon of the CCP. Mr. Xi now sees a fleeting window of opportunity to act while he perceives weakness in the U.S. and another witness, former National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster, he cited a joint statement between the Chinese leader and Russian President Vladimir Putin on the eve of the Beijing Olympics last year, which he summarized as, Hey, United States, West, free world, you're over. It's time for a new era of international relations, and we're in charge now. In the statement, Russia and China criticized unnamed global powers of efforts to employ unfair competition practices, intensify geopolitical rivalry, fuel antagonism and confrontation, and seriously undermine the international security order and global strategic stability. It laid out an alternative vision of a more multilateral global system. It's not a choice between Washington and Beijing, said Lieutenant General McMaster before the congressional panel. It's a choice between sovereignty and servitude. South Korea, Japan, work to move past a fraught history. What does it take to heal old wounds? Leaders in Japan and South Korea are finding out as they work to improve their country's troubled relations. By Anne Scott Tyson, staff writer. Coming off some of the most tense years since Japan and South Korea normalized relations in 1965, the two countries appear to be entering a new era in defense cooperation. Asian neighbors recently stepped up military ties, along with their treaty ally, the United States, in response to geopolitical pressures, including North Korea's growing missile and nuclear weapons program. Concerns surrounding China's military buildup and the war in Ukraine, they have held joint anti-submarine warfare exercises and ballistic missile defense drills, and pledged at a trilateral meeting in Washington last month to further strengthen and diversify security cooperation to counter the threat from North Korea. Today, following the trio's first economic security dialogue on Tuesday, South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol marked a key anniversary in relations by saying Japan has transformed from a militaristic aggressor of the past into a partner that shares the same universal values. You've seen a marked shift in bilateral relations over the past six to 12 months, says Frank Alm, senior expert on Northeast Asia in the U.S. Institute of Peace and a former U.S. defense official. Yet solidifying such gains in security ties between America's two most important allies in Asia ultimately depends on progress in resolving their nagging historical conflicts, disputes dating from Japan's 1910 to 1945 colonial rule of the Korean Peninsula that are deeply rooted in the national identity of both countries, experts say. 
Today, Seoul and Tokyo have a rare and limited window of opportunity to do just that. Following the election of two conservative leaders, President Yun in 2022 and Japanese Prime Minister Kishida Fumio in 2021. The two sides are negotiating a deal to provide compensation and an apology to Koreans forced to labor for Japan during World War II. But Asia experts say any deal must have Japanese and South Korean domestic support, especially from the victims and their advocates, or risk unraveling as have past agreements. That will require strong leadership and political courage, they say. It's not a lack of ideas and solutions to these particular problems that is halting progress. It's a lack of political will by politicians to mobilize public backing, says Daniel Snyder, a lecturer in East Asian studies at Stanford University in California. The window of opportunity exists, but it's not going to be open for long. A 2018 decision by South Korea's Supreme Court triggered the implosion of Japan-South Korean relations by ruling in favor of South Koreans claiming compensation for wartime forced labor. The decision fundamentally challenged Tokyo's position that its occupation of Korea was legal and that the 1965 Normalization Treaty settled all claims. South Korean court said these claims are active and actionable now, says Timothy Webster, an authority on the forced labor issue, who teaches international and comparative law at Western New England University. Japan responded in part by canceling favored trade ties with South Korea and imposing export controls on chemicals vital to South Korea's semiconductor production. That was a huge event, says S. Nathan Park, an attorney who was an expert on the 1965 agreement. Japan was threatening the semiconductor supply chain over this issue, a move that crossed the red line between defense cooperation and historical issues that had previously been dealt with on a separate track, he says. For the first time since 1965, the Japanese government leveraged economics to get resolution on a historical question. South Koreans saw that as a major issue of trust, says Mr. Park, a non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Today, the Supreme Court is poised to enforce its ruling by ordering the seizure of Japanese companies' assets in South Korea, a step that would again plunge the relationship into turmoil, experts say. The judgments are very close to being enforced against business assets in South Korea, and the Japanese government has threatened an all-out economic war, says Ethan Hee-Suk-Shin, a legal scholar at Seoul's Catholic University of Korea. The court was scheduled to rule in August, but delayed the decision as South Korean and Japanese diplomats try to hammer out a political compromise to address the sensitive claims issue. The big sort of democles is that the court will finally order the seizure of the assets of Jap Japanese companies to make those payments, says Mr. Snyder. If you get to that point without having made a deal, everything collapses. The buildup of momentum for strategic reasons to create a closer trilateral security system, all that can go by the wayside in a snap of the fingers. The South Korean and Japanese government negotiators hold talks aimed at working out a deal. A central question is whether the outcome will be seen as legitimate by domestic audiences in both countries. Past efforts to resolve this and related historical disputes have failed 
because they were viewed by the public as top-down, undemocratic, and insufficiently reflective of the concerns of victims and their descendants. What most of the victims want is an apology that expresses genuine remorse, as well as commemoration in the form of a ceremony, statue, or inclusion of the forced labor history in Japanese textbooks, says Dr. Webster. In South Korea, conservative leaders are constrained by the perception that they are overly pro-Japan. Most South Koreans hold unfavorable impressions of Japan, polls show. There's this broad sentiment that links conservatives as both having been collaborationists during the colonial period and colluding in the post-colonial period, says Eun Ah Jo, a fellow at the Institute for Security and Conflict Studies at George Washington University and a doctoral candidate at Cornell. This makes prioritizing outreach to victims imperative, experts say. Without this consensus domestically, the South Korean government trying to ram through a settlement is not going down very well with the forced labor survivors, to put it mildly, says Dr. Shin. In Japan, a political shift to the right in recent decades has lessened the government's incentives to strike a deal, particularly amid concerns that it won't be lasting if South Koreans reject it. In Japan, there's hesitation about moving ahead too quickly and having to deal with backlash in South Korea, says Christy Govella, director of the Center for Indo-Pacific Affairs and an assistant professor of Asian Studies at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. The biggest political hurdle for Tokyo is that within the general public, even on the opposition side, there are no voices asking the Japanese government to do more to reach an agreement with the South Koreans says Kunhiko Miyaki, a special advisor to Mr. Kishida's cabinet, speaking in his personal capacity. Fewer Japanese believe relations with Korea are important, less than half, compared with three-quarters a decade ago. The general public is still skeptical, says Mr. Miyaki, a former career Japanese diplomat who is now research director at the Canon Institute for Global Studies in Tokyo. A key question is whether Mr. Kishida will forge ahead despite this political atmosphere, as well as the reluctance of the right wing of the ruling Liberal Democratic Party. It's a moment where Mr. Kishida is going to have to show some real leadership relative to conservative voices within the party, says Mr. Schneider. In South Korea, President Yoon's government wants this agreement badly, he says. Negotiators are actively exploring possibilities including Japan funneling compensation funds to victims through a Japanese business federation and issuing an apology in the form of reaffirming key past statements, says Mr. Snyder. An agreement could be penned as early as this spring with a visit by President Yoon to Japan prior to the May G7 summit in Hiroshima, he says. But will these steps be enough? Mr. Kishida is trying because he understands the strategic importance of Japan-South Korea relations, says Mr. Miyaki. That's not the big issue. The issue is how to do it. In Peru, common good as a tool to fight corruption. Despite facing political and democratic crises over the past few decades, Peruvians are homing in on what they see as a root cause in need of repair, corruption. By Howard LaFranchi, Staff writer, Lima, Peru. For Raul Ibanez, Peru's political crisis and the sometimes violent unrest shaking the country in recent months are rooted in what he calls the scourge of our country. 
Corruption has been the downfall of our presidents for the past 30 years, he says, including former President Pedro Castillo, who has sat in prison since early December, following an attempt to dissolve Congress and rule by edict. Mr. Castillo joins a dubious club of seven recent presidents who have either been in prison or investigated for graft. But corruption isn't contained to Peru's top leadership. For the past two decades, it's touched everything, from the delivery of public services like health care and education to members of Congress. Mr. Ibanez, a radiologist sitting in a shaded Lima park with his wife and university student son on a recent afternoon, is among the many Peruvians who say corruption is a central factor in the country's instability and the government's failure to develop conditions for people like him to build better lives. By filling their own pockets through corruption, Politicians are harming the ability of others to provide for their families, says Mr. Ibanez. That's what so infuriates people. Some 88% of Peruvians believe that between half and all of their political leaders are involved in corruption, according to a 2021 America's Barometer survey conducted by the Latin American Public Opinion Project, LAPOP, at Vanderbilt University. That's the highest of any country in Latin America, a region where public perceptions of corruption in politics is generally high. Peruvians' perception of high corruption leads, in turn, to a collapse of trust in the country's institutions, says Noam Lupu, associate director of LAPOP. You can see that as the perceptions of corruption go up, the trust in institutions and confidence in the political system go down, he says. People lose faith that the political system is representing them and their families' interests. Mr. Castillo's replacement, his vice president, Dina Buarte, was quick to zero in on weeding out corruption when she assumed the presidency on December 7th. But nearly 60 deaths among pro-Castillo protesters since she took office, whilst coming at the hands of riot police and other accusations against her, have poisoned her ability to make headway, analysts say. Protests have largely retreated to Mr. Castillo's stronghold of support in the country's south, where makeshift anti-Buluarte roadblocks and workers' strikes continue to pop up. Many Peruvians who sat out recent protests say they might be tempted to hit the streets if there were a march focused specifically on corruption. I didn't march, but I can assure you my outrage over corruption is as strong as the sentiments the demonstrators were expressing says Rosario Madrid, a retired schoolteacher visiting family in Lima. Ms. Madrid says that accompanying her German husband on long-term work assignments in Chile and Germany revealed to her that her native country's corruption is not the norm. When you go outside Peru and see other realities, you ask yourself why the corruption is the way it is here, she says. Peru is a country of riches, but it seems that here more than elsewhere, the fruits of those riches go into the pockets of the powerful and wealthy, she says. Certainly not into the public schools, she adds, which as a teacher I find especially damaging for the future of my country. Indeed, Peruvians consider corruption the country's second most important problem negatively impacting average people's lives, surpassed only by deteriorating public safety, according to the anti-corruption organization ProEthica which conducted a national survey last August. That finding goes against the idea we have heard for some time, that corruption is an evil that is part of politics, but one that doesn't really affect the average citizen, 
such as Carlos Arroyo, director of Citizens and Open Government Audits at Proetica in Lima. What we find is that 59% of the population feels strongly that corruption has a direct impact on their family's economic situation. Peru's Office of the Comptroller General estimates that more than $5 billion is lost annually to corruption, Mr. Arroyo says. That is money that people feel is coming out of their pocket, but is not benefiting them. So why is corruption so prevalent? And why do Peruvians report feeling its impact at higher rates than other Latin Americans? The reasons are a myriad, experts say, and range from weak institutions generally, but paradoxically a relatively strong public prosecutorial system that has successfully pursued corruption cases to well-intentioned but counterproductive reforms. For example, of the latter is the ban on congressional re-election for second consecutive terms. The measure had the goal of tackling the problem of entrenched corrupt members of Congress, but many say it instead turned the five-year term into a race to reap as many material benefits as possible while keeping politicians free from the accountability that re-election can provide. In the current political crisis, holding early elections for a new Congress and president could be one solution, says Gino Costa, a human rights expert and former congresswoman, congressman who recently published a book chronicling the weakening of Peru's democracy. But members of the current Congress are resisting early elections as they would lose the privileges and benefits of their office, he says. So in this case, prohibiting re-election is a problem. At least seven members of the current Congress multiplied their income and assets astronomically over the year and a half in office, according to a recent study by Centro Liber, an investigative organization that promotes public access to government information. A number of those congresswomen and men are already under investigation for corruption. Peru's harrowing decade of terrorism in the 1980s also plays a role in corruption's hold on society. Former President Alberto Fujimori in quotes, solved the terrorism crisis by defeating the violent Shining Path guerrilla organization, says Peruvian anti-corruption expert Jose Ugaz. But Mr. Fujimori accomplished this through a total capture of the state that converted government into a kleptocracy and left Peru with institutions that were barely standing, Mr. Ugaz says. The Fujimori decade left corruption embedded in the structure of power, he says, instilling many with the fantastic refrain concerning corrupt leaders. He steals, but he gets things done. Mr. Ibanez, the radiologist, says that at the base of Peru's corruption scourge is the tendency of public officials to act in their own self-interest instead of seeing government as a tool for the betterment of all. The sense of the common good has not been at the heart of our national agenda, agrees Mr. Ugaz, the anti-corruption expert, Instead, he says, since the arrival of the Spaniards, Peru has had an extractive development model based on enriching oneself rather than giving back or improving people's lives. Corruption thrives when the focus of our political leaders is, I'm providing for me and my people, rather than a national project based on the common good, <clears throat> Mr. Ugas says. We know that successful countries have a strong sense of common good for building a national project but the repeated corruption scandals we've experienced right up to Castillo tells us we are lacking that essential ingredient. Reducing corruption in Peru won't be easy. It requires two elements, 
that can't be accomplished overnight, re-establishing public trust in institutions, and a cultural revolution that makes room for solidarity and a sense of empathy among Peruvians, Mr. Ugaz says. Corruption erodes trust, and if you don't have trust, you can't build a common good, he says, though he's seen some encouraging signs that society may be changing. During the pandemic, a number of ollas comunes, community soup kitchens, sprung up in neighborhoods experiencing food insecurity, signaling to Mr. Ugaz the solidarity necessary to build a sense of common good. The Castillo crisis has spawned some attempts at building dialogue across political and class lines, he says, and there are indications that a new class of political actors more focused on building a better Peru for all Peruvians may be emerging. We need a renewal that will put the priority on strengthening our institutions, Mr. Costa says. Back on the park bench, Mr. Ibanez is more succinct about the solution to Peru's corruption. We need honest politicians, he says. That's it. No Naira in Nigeria. What's a cashless reporter to do? Reporting from a foreign country when you have no money is hard enough. Try living there day in, day out when you have no money. Welcome to today's Nigeria, courtesy of the Central Bank. By Carlos Moriti, Lagos, Nigeria. I slid a mint $100 bill across the counter at a currency exchange shop at Lagos Airport and waited for the attendant to hand me back the equivalent in Nigerian Naira. It was February 16th, and I had just arrived in Nigeria to cover the country's much-anticipated presidential election. My mind was spinning with plans to attend rallies, interview voters, and shadow canvassers when suddenly the currency attendant's voice called me back to reality. We don't have money, she said, standing in front of boards, showing exchange rates for different global currencies. There's a Naira shortage. That was my abrupt introduction to Nigeria's cash crisis, caused by a bungled rollout of new banknotes. It had gripped the country for weeks in the run-up to the February 25th presidential election. The crisis is bound to be top of Bola Tinubu's to-do list now that he has been declared the winner and Nigeria's president-elect. In a heavily cash-dependent economy, the shortage has left people unable to buy basics such as food and water, or to catch buses to school and work. For me, the situation was less dire, but it did require some creative thinking. After the currency exchange attendant in the airport told me she had no cash, I asked her if she had any idea how I could buy a local SIM card without it. She told me to give her the cost of the SIM card in dollars, and then she made an instant bank transfer from her personal account to the SIM card's vendors. The vendor slid the new SIM into my phone, crisis averted, for now. The origins of this cash shortage stretched back to October, when Nigeria's central bank announced that new Naira notes would be introduced in some denominations to fight counterfeiting and hoarding, among other reasons. Nigerians had until February 10th to turn in old notes. Most did so, expecting that they'd get new money right away. It turned out, though, that few of the newly designed notes were available. Banks began severely restricting the amount of cash people could take out of their accounts. Every day, Nigerians thronged to banks and ATMs, forming hours-long queues to try to get at their money. In some parts of the country, 
angry citizens even burned down banks. All this was going on at a crucial moment in Nigeria's history. After years of insecurity, rising unemployment, and failing economy, Nigerians were about to vote in a presidential election that many hoped would turn the country around. Instead, the cash crisis was exacerbating the problems. Again and again during my election reporting, people I interviewed spoke unprompted of how much pain and anguish it caused them. Austin Ajimi, who drives a tuk-tuk, locally known as a keke, told me business was way down because people didn't have the new notes to pay for trips. Some, he added, might have had money in their accounts, but they lacked smartphones to do cashless bank transfers. We had just been driving up and down, wasting our fuel for nothing, he said outside a gas station in Ikeja, an area of Lagos where he was waiting for passengers. Usually, Mr. Ajime makes about 13,000 naira, $28 a day, but with the money shortage, he's been earning less than 8000 $17, most of it paid by bank transfers. That means his earnings are locked in the same limbo as his customers. He can't buy groceries for his family, for instance, because most of the food sellers he purchases from deal in cash. At Yaba College of Technology in Lagos, I found a handful of students sitting outside a classroom chatting. One of them, Genesis Kuba, told me that out of his class of 160, only these few had been able to make it to school that day. Others didn't have cash for the bus fare. He feels the government has mishandled the currency problem and, like with many other issues, he says it hasn't been transparent. We just want them to be truthful, he says. If the country is in a bad condition, tell us it's in a bad condition. As with many crises, Nigerians are finding ways to get by. Those who can pay for goods with banking apps on their phones, others use debit cards. But in a country where only 45% of adults had bank accounts in 2021, such methods exclude most of the population. So many people without bank accounts have started to use mobile money, a service popular in many other African countries that allows users to keep and send money from a digital wallet on their phone. The value of mobile money transactions has gone up 25% to $5.4 billion since the currency change was announced. After failing to get Naira at the airport, I spent the next 10 days figuring out creative ways to pay my reporting expenses. Luckily, my hotel agreed to accept dollars. The Nigerian journalist I was working with paid for our meals and cab rides through bank transfers, and I gave him the equivalent in dollars. But sometimes not having cash made it harder to bond with my sources. One day, for instance, I spoke to a man selling fried dough on a roadside. Normally, after an interview like this, I'd buy a snack from his stall in appreciation. But without cash, I couldn't. It was tiring, and when I left the country on Sunday, the crisis still seemed far from any resolution. As my taxi driver approached Lagos Airport, he veered suddenly onto a different road, He'd have to take a longer route, he explained to me, to avoid a toll. He didn't have any cash. Points of progress, what's going right? Library thrives in a Pakistan gun town and the olfactory superpower of AI. In our progress roundup, things that don't seem to belong together yield dynamic results, including books inspiring readers in a village best known for its black market weapons. Erica Page, staff writer.
from the United States. U.S. military veterans in crisis can now receive free emergency mental health care. The new policy provides acute suicide care even to those who are not already enrolled for health care with the Department of Veterans Affairs. They can seek help at any facility for up to 30 days of inpatient and 90 days of outpatient treatment. Afterwards, the policy directs veterans to other VA services and benefits. More than 6,000 U.S. veterans died by suicide in 2020, down from a high in 2006. 2006. Veterans between the ages of 18 and 24 have a suicide rate three times as high as non-veterans of the same age group. One study found that up to 35% of military health care recipients don't have access to adequate psychiatric care, despite government insurance. The new measure, which also provides support for service members who survive sexual assault, battery, or harassment during their time in the military, attempts to help fill the gap. This expansion of care will save veterans' lives, and there's nothing more important than that, says Secretary for Veterans Affairs, Dennis McDonough. The emergency care provision is part of the 10-year national strategy for preventing veteran suicide. By CNN and the Washington Post. From Brazil. As Brazil's first minister for indigenous peoples, Sonia Guajajara is also the country's first indigenous cabinet member. She leads an organization representing some 300 indigenous groups across the country and is a member of the Amazon Guajajara. President Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, who returned to the presidency at the start of the year, fulfilled a campaign promise to create the new ministry. Ms. Guajajara is also a well-known environmentalist and indigenous rights activist, named by Time magazine as one of the world's most influential people in 2022. For supporters, the commitment to indigenous affairs is about more than just one group of people. The Ministry of Indigenous Peoples could also be and is also the Ministry of the Forest, of the land. It could be called the Ministry of Life. This is the size of the responsibility, said activist Celia Zakriaba, by AP and Globo. From the United Kingdom, renewables generated a higher share of electricity than gas in the UK between October and February. Energy sources like wind, hydro, and solar provided 40 terawatt hours of electricity, while gas generated 39 terawatt hours. Other sources, such as nuclear and biomass, produced another 24 terawatt hours. Renewables and nuclear together generated 82.5% of Britain's electricity between December 29th and January 9th. In comparison, about 20% of utility-scale electricity generation in the United States in 2021 was from renewables. Wind power alone hit a record of 50.4% of the UK's energy mix on January 10th. Observers note there is still progress to be made in terms of prices and updates to the grid to accommodate the increase of renewable energy. Research and investment are urgently needed into ways to store renewables, as well as viable exchange between us and mainland Europe and the island of Ireland, writes Zoe Williams in an op-ed, The Guardian, by Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit. From Israel, a new biological sensor identifies odors with a level of sensitivity that is 10,000 times higher than other devices. Unlike visual and auditory systems, 
the sense of smell has long proved difficult for scientists to replicate during using technology. Researchers developed the biohybrid sensor by combining the desert locusts antenna, electroantennogram technology, and artificial intelligence to detect odors imperceptible to humans. Nature is much more advanced than we are, so we should use it, said Ben Maus, one member of the Tel Aviv University team, which expects the technology to be used in detecting explosive, drugs, and other threats. Compared to other biohybrid sensors available today, it can be easily operated by an unskilled individual, writes the researchers in a study describing the findings published this month. Researchers in other places, such as the Biohybrid Systems Laboratory at the University of Tokyo, are also working on similar solutions. By the Jerusalem Post and Biosensors and Bioelectronics Journal. From Pakistan. A library is thriving in a town known for its guns. Dara Adam Kel, which lies 85 miles west of Islamabad, is infamous for its sprawling black market weapons bazaar. In rural areas, literacy rates are low and community members doubted whether Dara Adam Kel Library could succeed when the project took root in 2018. Today, it is home to some 4,000 books, ranging from history to fiction and is frequented by 500 members who pay 150 rupees, 55 cents, a year. There was once a time when our young men adorned themselves with weapons like a kind of jewelry, says Urfanullah Khan, who donated the plot of land where the library was built. But men look beautiful with the jewel of knowledge. Beauty lies in the arm, not in arms, but in education. Limited educational opportunities, poverty, and sporadic violence maintain uh, remain obstacles for this town. Volunteer librarian Shafiullah Afridi struggles to maintain a no-weapons policy in this space, and so far the majority of the library's visitors are men. But he holds out hope, noting that more young people today are interested in education instead of weapons. By VOA News and the New York Times. A win against Russia outside Ukraine. Once close to Moscow, Serbia accepts a plan to end acrimony with Kosovo, signaling a desire to curb aggressive ethnic nationalism by peaceful means, by the Monitor's editorial board. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has been clarifying for Europe about its values, democratic values, that helped restrain the ethnic nationalism of its own past wars and now drives Moscow's aggression. The latest example is an agreement brokered by the European Union to normalize ties between Serbia and Kosovo, nearly a quarter century after a war between them left thousands killed. The two states in the Balkans, both remnants of the former Yugoslavia, accepted an 11-point plan on February 27th to improve ties, respect each other's borders, and deal with the ethnic Serb minority in Kosovo, a nation of mainly ethnic Albanians. If implemented, the plan would deal a blow to Russia's attempt to control states in Europe with Slavic or Orthodox Christian populations, such as Serbia. The invasion forced Serbia to take steps to partially distance itself from Moscow, such as seeking alternatives to Russian gas and oil. Serbia also voted for a United Nations resolution condemning the invasion and refusing to recognize Russia's annexations of eastern Ukraine. Serbia's decision to accept the EU plan should bring what 
everyone has been defending for years. Peace, coexistence, a better life for Serbs and Albanians, wrote Zorana Mihalovic, a former minister under President Alexander Vucic on Instagram. The movie might also help the move might also help accelerate Serbia's candidacy for membership in the EU. Since the invasion, the US has joined the EU leaders in trying to end frictions left over from the Balkan Wars of the 1990s that erupted after the end of the Cold War. What's new is not only the seriousness of both Kosovo and Serbia, but the seriousness of our European partners to make this happen in the shadow of one of the biggest crises Europe has seen since the World War since World War II, said US Deputy Assistant Secretary of State Gabriel Escobar. The EU plan is designed to make small steps in trust building, such as easier cross-border travel for business or education. As President Vucic told his nation after accepting the plan, let's make rational compromises that concern real life. That sort of democratic consensus seeking does not sound like the aggressive nationalism of Serbia's past. The battlefront against Russia's war with Ukraine isn't only in Ukraine. Two models for peace in Africa. In Sudan and Ethiopia, the pathway back to peace and democracy depends on fidelity to civic norms of empathy and inclusivity by the Monitor's editorial board. One long-standing challenge for Africa has been a pattern of military conflict and misrule. Now, two of its most consequential countries, Ethiopia and Sudan, are seeking to break that pattern with new models for stability, one after a war, the other after a coup. Both are implementing fragile agreements to restore peace. Ethiopia is trying to forge a future of national unity that might break from a past of ethnic fragmentation. Sudan seeks to end a cycle of military rule. Their different approaches underscore lessons for how conflict-torn societies foster civic values that can bind people to shared identities. For nearly 50 years, Ethiopia was overshadowed by the rise and dictatorial rule of a small ethnic minority known as the Tigrayans. That era came to an end in 2018 when Abiy Ahmed became prime minister. He was personified, he personified the new national identity he hoped to promote. His father was Muslim, his mother Christian. They hailed from different ethnic groups. Before we can harvest peace dividends, Mr. Abi said when he won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2019, we must plant seeds of love, forgiveness, and reconciliation in the hearts and minds of our citizens. A year later, his country was at war. The new prime minister pushed out the Tigrayan old guard. Accounts vary over what happened next. Mr. Abi says Tigrayan rebels attacked a military outpost in the north. A new book, written by two BBC reporters published last week, suggests he had been preparing for war well before that incident. The fighting lasted two years, killing more than 600,000 and displacing 5 million others. The United Nations report last September alleged that Ethiopian and Tigrayan troops had committed gross human rights violations including ethnic cleansing, rape, and deliberate mass starvation. The other victim of the war may be Mr. Abbey's Doctrine of Reconciliation. A peace accord signed last November is the first to incorporate the African Union's new framework for a transitional justice. That document calls for national hearing through post-conflict reconstruction and accountability of state and non-state actors for serious violations of human rights activities. 
Yet, Mr. Abi consistently blocked humanitarian intervention during the war, and now he's trying to rally support to suspend an ongoing UN investigation into atrocities committed during the war. Meanwhile, observers are watching to see what forms accountability he might endorse. In Sudan, a different process is unfolding. Since 1956, the country has seen 16 military coup, coup attempts. Six were successful. The most recent, in October 2021, has sparked a sustained and coordinated grassroots campaign to restore democracy. Nearly 120 people have been killed by security force crackdowns during peaceful protests, but the military's heavy hand hasn't worked. Eight months after taking power, the generals apologized and promised to give up power. In December, they signed a transition roadmap with pro-democracy groups. A dialogue for restoring civilian rule is gradually gaining ground. Sudan's lost long pursuit of lasting democracy, noted Jawar Hatzel Kamal Kanu and Jonathan Pickney in a recent U.S. Institute of Peace report, forged an incubator of civic activism based on nonviolence, solidarity, and empathy. A country with high levels of civic mobilization is much more likely to democratize and to build qualitatively better democracy, they wrote, as a newly engaged public holds transitional leaders to account and pushes for more inclusive politics. No two peace processes are the same, but Sudan and Ethiopia may prove that their success depends on fidelity to ideals on which they are founded. From Letters to the Editor, when I read the Monitor's recent commentary on Nigeria's presidential election, published online in the Daily last month, I was brought back to the February 13th column from Mark Sappenfield, a Monitor newsroom debate which explored the question, is democracy a value? The development of democracy in the countries collectively known as the West has hardly been a straight line. The United Kingdom has taken over 800 years to get from the Magna Carta to today. France is on its fifth republic since 1792. Germany, Italy, Spain, and Portugal have gone through periods of autocracy in the last century, and as noted in the Monitor's coverage, satisfaction with democracy is at a low ebb in many countries. What I'm wondering is whether, under the circumstances, we should be using the development of democracy as a measure of progress in the developing world at all. Former colonies were bequeathed nominally democratic systems at the time of decolonization, and most retain these systems, but progress toward true democracy has been mostly plotting. With many backward steps, attempts to impose democracy on disparate countries such as Vietnam, Nicaragua, and Afghanistan have been dismal failures. If these countries are ever to become true democracies, they must do it on their own terms, as countries in the West have done. In the meantime, I don't think it's right for us in the West to make judgments based on progress or lack thereof in that direction. Eric Kleber, Cleveland Heights, Ohio. Thank you for joining us for the Christian Science Monitor Daily. My name is Sherry McCundon. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.